What is your era? Is it the sound of the slamming screen door sneaking out late? Is it taking my hand and dragging me head first, fearless? Is it having the time of your life fighting dragons with me? Is it feeling like we're 22 and remembering it all too well? Is it having this music in your mind saying, it's gonna be alright? Is it when you got smarter, you got harder in the nick of time? Is it being drunk in the back of a car, crying like a baby coming home from the bar? Is it where you're doing good and on some new shit, been saying yes instead of no? Is it where life was a willow and it bent right to your wind and you came back stronger than a 90s trend? Or is it where karma is a cat purring on your lap because it loves you? (laughs) Welcome to Feminist in Progress. I'm your host, Price. And in this episode, I talk about the Eras Tour film. Taylor Swift's recent blockbuster concert film of the biggest concert by a single artist, which in essence is a celebration of girlhood and womanhood as those who flocked the stadiums and cinemas grew up on Swift's music and had a marvelous time ruining everything, at least for the haters, that is. This isn't the first time I talk about Taylor in the podcast. Yes, let's act like I'm on a first-name basis with her. In fact, there's an entire episode where I talked about how I was once the opposite of a Taylor Swift fan. But, in keeping with this podcast through line of progress, not perfection, she became someone I changed my mind about. That episode felt like such a long time ago. I mean, Swift was still in her longest romantic relationship to date, and I was still single. <laughs> now, she's on top of the world, as I'll discuss in this episode. Also, she's reportedly dating a professional footballer after a PR hiccup of dating a problematic musician. And I got married a few months ago. How swiftly life moves, huh? But here we are, a little over two years later, still talking about Taylor Swift who's had nothing but a stellar, bejeweled, karmic year in her career. And maybe even her love life? I don't know. I'm not here to talk about Taylor Swift, the celebrity. Well, I'm not here to talk about her dating life. (laughs) This episode mostly focuses on the Eras tour film, which has had discourse around it in terms of what it means to Swift's predominantly female fan base the business moves that Swift and her team made in filming and distributing this film at a time when writers and actors respective labor unions in the U.S. went on strike, both of which are over now as of this episode's production, and how, in the end, the mastermind Taylor Swift has become the man. All that and more after the break. There's a New York Times magazine article that I read in anticipation of my Eras tour film viewing experience titled My Delirious Trip to the Heart of Swifty Dumb. Swifty Dumb? Swifty Dumb. (laughs) That. And it's written by Taffy Brodesser Achner. In it, she chronicles her experience of watching the Eras tour 
in person, you know, as in the actual concert, you know, lucky her, good for her. And in it, she also pays close attention to the idea of one's personal era. A through line of this concert is just the idea of us having eras, you know, maybe even chapters in our lives, you know. And the kind of like the way I see it is it's just us finding ourselves or going through different versions or iterations of ourselves as we try to find ourselves. <laughs> After all, part of Swift's appeal as an artist is the relatability of her lyrics. Not her as a person per se, but the art she creates. It's Swift's, quote, urgent metabolization of her pain into poetry, end quote, as Brodesser Ackner eloquently put it. Swift is an artist who has managed to keep a reputation with minimal scandal or public meltdowns in the 17 years she's been in the public eye. That is, there are no highly publicized mental breakdowns, no substance abuse struggles, or any experimentation with a hypersexualized persona. You know, not many women pop stars can say the same. To cite the aforementioned New York Times Magazine essay, Swift escaped the machine where women are only allowed to be pop stars if they don't anger or threaten men. Now, let's go back to talking about the film itself. The Eras Tour film is a straightforward recording of her concert when she performed it at SoFi Stadium in California, with some songs apparently being cut. It's a musical oscillation in celebration of her so-called eras, a non-linear journey into her 10 albums, a decade and a half's worth of artistry, if I may say so. And the film concert itself is arranged in a way with highs and mellows, thus creating a well-crafted flow that sustains energy. You know, whether you've been there since her yee-haw glitter days or her bejeweled pop days of recent years, there's something for everyone in some way. The Eras Tour film exhibits Swift's artistry on full display. From her mastery of songwriting that audiences scream, sing to. And actually, you can tell which ones, which era resonates with them based on how loudly and passionately they sang along. And her creation of a call and response experience. I mean, personally, as a reputation era Swifty, I was elated when I got to do the one, two, three, let's go, bitch, <laughs> to the song Delicate. And also, part of the artistry that was on display in that film was her storytelling through lyrics, you know, her, the dance choreography, the production design. So much of it is just a switch and bait is a work of art <laughs> to make another unnecessary Taylor Swift lyrical reference. You know, it was an experience that you can just immerse yourself in and just you know celebrate the songs that you just used to listen to and then just see her in her element so to say now these were all made possible through collaboration of different artists you know ranging from dancers and choreographers to you know her live band and you know backup singers the, the production designers who created the stage and so much more 
Her songs came to life not just through the production of the concert itself, but through the audience's experience. Well, experiences, you know. I think maybe this is just me, but I think anytime that Eris tour film is shown or screened, or anytime she goes somewhere in any stadium and performs live, it's a unique experience for everybody who's there. But in my experience, you know, my cinema treated that viewing experience as if it was rare, as if we were there, as if we'll remember it all too well. <laughs> we sang and screamed along. It was a lot of energy, I'll admit, but it was fun. We applauded, even if we knew, you know, Taylor would never hear our applauses from where we were. There were even some who danced to shake it off and look what you made me do. Well, and it was for those who at least were mindful enough that they can stand and dance along without obscuring others' views. Um, so that was a, a rather pleasant, respectful experience. There was even someone who donned a green velvet cape and carried around a lone lantern when Willow came on. <laughs> I think in my cinema experience, it wasn't um as intense as the others there 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 weren't folks who flocked like spaces in the cinema to just dance and form circles around as if they were like witches in the occult <laughs> um what else did i observe i mean a lot of us were definitely singing along there were even moments when i was like i just sat and just um listened and immersed myself in the experience i didn't treat it as if it were like open karaoke although i do want to experience watching that film again without being in a crowd that would overwhelm or drown out her vocals because i just wanted to appreciate the artistry that i was talking about earlier without like adding additional stimuli to it and yeah now I'm just I'm heartily laughing again because right now I'm thinking about how early on in the film when the iconic You Belong With Me from the Fearless Era came on and I was heartily laughing. <laughs> See, this was a song I heavily related to when I was like 18 years old and a college freshman and and this is me admitting, I was in my pick-me-girl-slash-not-like-other-girls era. Because, you know, I didn't know much about feminism and sisterhood and having a better self-esteem and, like, having a loving relationship with yourself. So, yeah, uh, I was that girl who wore sneakers and t-shirts and wanted the guy in one of her classes in college to notice her instead of the other girl in our class who seemed to easily be the crush ng bayan. But here I am, practically like, what, 15 years after that, when that song first came out, and sitting there watching the Aerosaur film and just, like, laughing, <laughs> thinking about that version of myself but not you know see it was in that moment in a sea of phone camera flashes from youngins recording themselves singing along 
that despite years of distancing myself from Taylor Swift and her public image and calling her a guilty pleasure for innumerable years, I realized I pretty much grew up with her. And I continued to grow with her. Whose music did I turn to when I went through my worst romantic heartbreak in 2019 and entered my red and 1989 era concurrently? Whose music did I also turn to when I eventually found the kind of love that felt safe and comforting like daylight, thus bringing me to my lover era? Whose lyrics did I reference when writing my wedding vows? Whose music can safely surface tough emotions without letting them linger? She's been there all along. Why didn't I see her music belonged with me? So, in that moment of you belong with me, I heartily laughed instead of cringing because I realized my girlhood had some naivete when it came to romantic love. Singing along to You Belong With Me was, you know, me no longer denying that part of myself, that pick-me-girl version of myself. And the heiress experience overall helped me to get to that place in my life. You know, instead of denying that part of myself or cringing at her, I acknowledge that part of myself. I don't deny her. In fact, I'm proud of how far she's come as a person, as a woman, and how much she's grown. Damn it, look what you made me do, Taylor. <laughs> it, it, it's, in, it's ineffable, I'll say, how I can listen to and, and passionately sing along to every word of a song like All Too Well, the 10-minute version, that can safely bring back you know, delicate emotions I once felt without whipping me back to that heartbreak itself and leaving me feeling, you know, shame or feeling like a lifeless frame. You know, there's nothing but catharsis when I sing along to lyrics like, you kept me like a secret, but I kept you like an oath. It's enchanting, to say the least. To be in a room with my friend Lorraine, and a little over a hundred fans with a shared affinity for this woman with whom we went from girlhood to womanhood. But that's not to say that we were exclusively all people who identified as women. There were, of course, you know, the Swifty boyfriends who watched along with their partners, queer men, and even fathers who accompanied their children. When the film was a few minutes late in our cinema, and it was delayed with repeated screenings of the trailers for the Marvels and Five Nights at Freddy's, it was actually a little kid who cried aloud, just started already. <laughs> and I just couldn't help but laugh. It reminded me like, okay, a lot of people from different age groups or whatnot can just come to the cinema and have a wonderful time. Again, quoting from that New York Times Magazine article, Brodesser Ackner writes, You could watch this concert. You could watch this entire phenomenon through the eyes of the idea that Taylor Swift frees women to celebrate their girlhood, to understand that their womanhood is made up of these micro-chapters of change, and we're not different people than we were then, that we shouldn't disavow the earlier versions of ourselves, our earlier eras.
apart from Swift's impact on her audience, there's also something about the film that I find fascinating. Okay, here's a little bit of a background. The film was produced and released during the SAG-AFTRA and WGA strikes, but Taylor, who is herself a member of the Screen Actors Guild, and her team went about shooting and distributing the film in what I think is the right way. They reportedly applied for and received an interim agreement with SAG-AFTRA. And I don't want to get into much into the details behind the strike, why it happened, what it was that they were asking for. As of the recording of the episode, both strikes are over. So you can do a bit of like research yourself there. I just really want to focus on this, the film's production and distribution and how... Even in the midst of the strike, Swift did something, I wouldn't say unprecedented or, as I mentioned earlier, she went about it the right way, you know. So, as I mentioned, you know, Swift and her team applied for or they received an interim agreement with SAG-AFTRA, which basically just meant that the guild's strike rules did not apply to the project because it was produced in compliance with the guild's new standards. At the time, I think members, as part of the strike, couldn't um, be in productions, couldn't promote any production. But there were some exceptions, as long as you know any anybody just like applied for this so-called interim agreement. In a statement to Entertainment Weekly, a spokesperson for SAG-AFTRA said, "Quote." Taylor Swift's team signed the same interim agreement that hundreds of other productions have signed during the strike. It's important to note that the terms Swift agreed to include all of the provisions in our final offer to the AMPTP, or the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, demonstrating the viability of our provisions. So, the Eras Concert film was applied for, qualified for, and signed into an interim agreement in the same manner as every other production with an interim agreement. By securing the IA, Swift and her team ensured that the film was produced in full compliance with strike rules. So, I think that pretty much just involved, I think, fair I don't know, I didn't really look much into this. Anyway, the Ares tour film marks a significant shift in Swift's do- documentary distribution approach or any other like release of some sorts. Just to illustrate, unlike her previous works, which were exclusively available on various streaming services and TV networks, this film follows a different path. Miss Americana and Taylor Swift's Reputation Stadium Tour were initially featured on Netflix. Folklore, the Long Pond Studio Sessions, made its debut on Disney+. And Taylor Swift's City of Lover concert was broadcast on ABC in the US. So, for this film, for the Eras concert film, instead of hiring a filming crew from those big companies, no, she didn't go to major studios like, you know, like Disney or Warner Brothers or Netflix. No, she didn't go to them, hire their crew to film the concert and then have them take care of the distribution to the 
theaters who were actually quite affected during the pandemic swift actually actually just shook them off and made a deal directly with the theaters and i'll try looking you can try looking for this somewhere on the internet where you know renowned artist auteur christopher nolan was praising what swift did when it came to this one and i too find this business move laudable considering considering film studios and their gritty business practices or were part of the reasons why you know writers and actors went on strike in the first place and this is a move that beyonce you know beyonce is making for herself when she releases her concert film from her renaissance tour before the end of the year a report from variety notes that cutting off the middlemen you know that is the large scale film studios could be a money-making move for swift in this setup swift's team will get about 57 percent of the money from ticket sales the theaters will hold on to the rest of the cash or whatever earnings. And AMC theaters, who are credited as the film's distributor, will only take a small cut as a distribution fee, which, which is significantly less than what studios usually charge. When it comes to the exhibitors, many of them see it as a fair deal. They point out, I mean the Variety article point out, that even big Marvel films you know typically get around 65 percent of the money from the box office as of this episode's production the film has crossed 200 million dollars at the global box office people.com reported that the film opened to blockbuster ticket sales of 92.8 million dollars in the u.s making it the fifth biggest opening of any theatrical release this year and now she's hit billionaire status according to a bloomberg analysis her net worth is now at 1.1 billion dollars thanks in part to the heiress tour bloomberg says swift is one of the few entertainers to reach that status based on just her music and performance and you know with such a successful year for her i can't help but think that taylor swift has now become the man This brings me back to when I first talked about Swift in the podcast. Exploring her version of feminism, which I still stand by, is just celebrity feminism. To recall, celebrity feminism is part of a continuum of feminisms that Sarah Bennett Weiser calls popular feminism. Bennett Weiser defines celebrity feminism as a spectacular media-friendly expression of feminism that achieves more visibility and expressions that critique patriarchal structures and systems of racism and violence are more obscured. For all the readings of the heiress tour as a celebration of girlhood and womanhood and embracing our different eras as women, since I last talked about her, there's nothing really outstanding about her that the feminist in me would, you know, consider her like a feminist icon. A white feminist, for sure, but nothing more than that. Do I still see her as a feminist 
in progress. Maybe? I don't know. She still has hints of white feminism, which my friend and fellow Swifty Louie wrote about in their Substack essay titled, Taylor Swift is a white feminist, and I don't know why I'm totally fine with that. <laughs> Basically, it captures, uh, you know, my sentiments. Their essay mentions a few things that I've, you know, basically also discussed in the podcast the first time I dedicated an episode to talk about Swift. And, you know, here I am more than two years later after that first episode. And I can conclude that I don't need to draw my inspiration of feminism from Taylor Swift. Now, I don't need her to be a face of feminism because celebrity and feminism are rarely ever an effective combination. I don't see her as an activist. Come on. She's definitely a white feminist. She's definitely a celebrity feminist. I even sometimes hesitate to call her one, but you know, I'm, it's unfeminist of me to say somebody's not a feminist just because of like their different way of doing it. Here's what I'll say though. I said it earlier and I'll say it again. Taylor Swift is now the man. She's one of the most successful women in the music industry. You know, she's now a billionaire. She's in her billionaire girl boss era. Live that love that laughed at for her. And you know, as I conclude this episode, I find myself echoing similar sentiments that my friend Louie had in their aforementioned Substack essay. This episode really just went from celebrating Swift. <laughs> And what she means to a lot of people based on the Eras tour film. To also being critical of her, which it's fine. You know, you can like something and be critical of it. That's healthy. And I like Taylor Swift, the artist. I'm thankful for the art that she's given us. And I'm thankful for whatever art she will continue to give us. I will still listen to her music. You know, I won't begrudge her impact on girls and women so yeah she's a white feminist and just like my friend louie i don't know why i'm fine with that what about you what are your thoughts about swift let me know on spotify because apparently they now have a feature where you can you know share your thoughts you know what what do you think you know or you can you know, interact with me on social media at feminist in progress pod you can follow us on Facebook at the Feminist in Progress podcast. If you want to you know, share lengthy thoughts or share an essay or whatever else that you want me to talk about in the podcast, you can email me, feministinprogresspod at gmail.com. If you want to support this independently produced podcast, you may do so via the details that are in the episode description. Until next time, remember, progress, not perfection. Perfection.